For those of you who do not know what we do in the International Centre for Educational Enhancement at the University of Bolton, amongst the various activities built around our moral purpose, we support and network something like 75 schools in the UK and a growing number of international schools in five or six different international settings. And we have, and are really excited about, a conference that's coming up in Gothenburg on the 14th and 15th of March. It's a part of a series of conferences that we've been holding, trying to get our minds into what could be the light that breaks in the COVID crisis. What enables us to think what was not great before and to take this opportunity to reframe how we work with our schools. And so this is the first of a number of podcasts in that journey, framing that conference. So the cycle of three conferences have been, what is the future we want? The future is now. And this one, which is, how do we make the changes sustainable and impactful? So a conference about sustainable education, not just about what we do with our young people and how we structure our skills, but how do we as school leaders create a sustainable role for the future? Because certainly it's been really challenging for school leaders over the last two years as we've been driven by operational demands. And to be honest, uh, the work of our school leaders, not just in the UK, but across the world has been pretty memorable really so all credit to them uh, so this podcast is really if you like the first i hope of a number uh, which pave the way for the conference and start us to think about the issues i'm very minded by the fact that march is a critical time in a uk setting and probably in most others that whatever we decide to do for september has to be decided by March. We have to make sure that we have the resources in our plans and have the time for developing it. And change for positivity is not a one-year event, it's a five-year event. Um, and it's something you then have to sustain after that. And, but I, I think more than ever, there is a need for rapid and disruptive action to be able to achieve what we want to do, to enable our young people to have the education that they deserve. Um, it's that sort of hackneyed saying about, you cannot step over a chasm, you have to leap. And I think now is the time to leap. So I want to refer, and I'm going to read to you, sorry, um, three pieces of really uh, relevant and recent writing um, that I think have marked a change in what the educational world is saying to us and imploring us to do. Uh, the conference on the Monday evening, um, which is going to be attended by our Swedish colleagues from Kunskapskolen, as well as our schools in the UK, and that in itself is a, an amazing opportunity, uh, is going to start with two think pieces. Um, a contribution, uh, a live contribution by both of them um, from elsewhere in the world, 
firstly by Yong Shao, Professor Yong Shao from the University of Kansas, and then secondly by Professor Andy Hargreaves, and I'll come back to that one later. But I want to focus particularly and start this podcast looking at what Yong Shao is saying to us. And one of his recent books is called Reach for Greatness, Personalizable Education for All Children. And he draws a distinction in the book between personalized education and personalized personalized learning. Um, And I just want to read uh, a, a section from his book, which illustrates this. And I find the section in the book where I thought I had opened already. Um, Here we go. So in this particular section, um, it's on page 68, he talks about process versus outcome. Personalizable education emphasizes the personalization of outcomes. It encourages and supports each and every student to discover and develop his or her unique jagged profile of knowledge, skills, and other qualities such as passions and dispositions. It affords students the resources and opportunities for them to explore and experiment with their interests and talents so as to identify and enhance their strengths. The personalization is at the outcome level. In other words, personalizable education supports students being different from each other in what they know and are able to do. In contrast, personalized learning, individualized learning and customized learning, as they are commonly practiced today, are often about the process of learning. The outcome is predetermined, typically by graduation requirements or curriculum standards. Students are allowed to vary only in where, when or how fast they want to learn, but they are not allowed to decide what they want to learn. The expected outcome is that all students master the same set of knowledge skills. Thus, personalized learning usually happens within a particular course, such as maths or English. This is especially true in the currently most popular form of personalized learning, learning systems on platforms delivered by assisted technology. This form of learning offers limited choices at very low levels, such as pace, place, and timing. Personalized learning is almost an oxymoron because it suggests someone has done the personalization already for the students. Now, I would take issue with lumping individualized learning and personalized learning together, because I don't think personalization means individualization. It would, it would kill you as a teacher if you had to create the same thing for every student and manage that. But in a way, they sort of fit in that differentiation bit. For years and years, I've been watching lessons and telling teachers in schools I've been leading to think about differentiating for all the students. And actually, it's really, really hard to do because, well, where a student is varies almost from every level. You can't categorize them into groups. Depends how they feel, never mind where they are with, against that particular topic. So, so differentiation and individualization are, are 
things that seem reasonable to try and achieve. But the reality is it's very hard to do. Um, and it assumes that the person that's receiving, in other words, the student, has no agency <coughs> or no ability to be able to move that forward. If we insist in teachers in managing the whole learning experience, then we can only go as far as differentiation and the outcomes and leave some space, as Young Shao has been saying, for that sort of activity within the control environment. You may know, or you may have children, or in my case, grandchildren, who are passionate and interested in all sorts of things. And certainly a couple of my grandchildren have been told regularly, will you answer the question on the paper and not what you want to write about? Because although it's great and interesting and really high level, it's not the question that you have been asked. Now I know in terms of examination, that's something that we've said to kids forever and ever, but it demonstrates the point that where do we give children the opportunity to really develop their passion for learning? So it's an interesting conundrum for us to consider because actually I don't think many schools are actually personalizing learning, never mind creating a personalized education for people. So we're looking really we're looking forward to hearing from Yong Shao specifically and challenging ourselves about the structure of the curriculum and experiences we give young people. It would be fair to say that within the Kunskab School and Approach and Learning Framework, when we do it right, when we do it well, there is scope for differentiated outcomes that the students use. But we can go further and we can do more. What's really interesting about the book though, is that it marks a shift, I think, in what people are writing about. And um, Patsy Salberg, talked recently about not just an education for the economy, but an education for humanity. That was the mind shift that we needed to make. And um, what COVID has done, what the pandemic has done, has reminded us that learning is a social activity. I was preparing a, a master's um, session the other day, and I went back to Vygotsky's view about uh, personal development. And it sort of sits alongside and different from Piaget's different stages, which we all recognize. But it identifies that learning takes place in a social environment. It's that social interaction that actually leads to individual development. And, and when I look and listen to what's happened over the last two years, and particularly how children are coming back, what people are saying is that they lack perseverance, they lack resilience to see things through the end, they want to be told what to do, so they lack agency, uh, their oracy skills are more limited, and when they do uh, debate something, then the views are quite fixed, they've almost lost the ability to uh, engage in purposeful dialogue. Now, all of that is a generalization, of course, but none of that, when you think about Vygotsky and you think about what's happened over the last two years, is really surprising. Um, and unless we address that, rather than deal with the outcomes issues of learning gap, as people say, then we will not move forward. So the next piece of work I'm going to turn to is Michael Fullan. 
And in 2020, he, with Margaret Gallagher, wrote a book entitled uh, The Devil is in the Detail. And he prepared the way, I suppose, for this latest book, which is entitled Spirit Work and the Science of Collaboration that he wrote with Mark Edwards. This is a very recent book and just hot off the press. But in it, he talks very much about um, the importance of well-being and, and what spirit really is. Um, and again, I'm just going to read a small part of this. And it brings in this word well-being. And you will have heard much around you about the importance of well-being, more so than ever before. And it is much more than being able to arrange yoga sessions or um, well-being days or important those those are but there is something more fundamental about what we need to do within our learning so this is at the end of um, the second chapter on spirit work and towards the conclusion he writes on page 19 a core part of new spirit work is well-being for all well-being should have been a core part of learning all along but in modern times it has given way to academic learning as the latter gained prominence, and I know ironically we would say, there's been a rise of ill-being, stress, anxiety among students, parents, and teachers. Fallen documents in detail how academic obsession has dehumanized learning to the detriment of learning itself and of well-being, the wounded winners who pay the price through the deteriorating mental health. And earlier in the chapter, he'd identified what he meant by spirit, what spirit work was, and he broke it down into a number of different areas. The development of trust, the development of conversation, of faith, of conviction, of love, laughter and humour, and light and hope. And I'll just read a bit in the light and hope bit. Spirit is a forced field that creates the light for the path ahead and gives hope to students and teachers. Spirit work creates the conditions and the relationships that maximize learning and growing. We need each other more than ever before. We need everybody's creativity and caring and open hearts to find our way forward. We can help one another by trusting. A hopeful future is possible. So, so again, what we're starting to see is an understanding of the importance of relationships at the very heart of a school. And if, in, as in our country in the UK, we have this overbearing accountability forced upon us and content, ever-increasing content, it removes the space and the time for those relationships, which enables that to happen. How many times have you visited a school and you can say within the first few minutes, I can feel the spirit of this place. And that's what this is talking about. It's about creating, creating that, that culture that enables learning to be maximized and students to be able to feel ownership of the journey that they're actually making. And, and what's happening here? Well, 
I was talking to my colleagues in the university and they were telling me, although it's not quite reflected in our case, but there's been a 38% reduction in the number of applications for teaching training this year. I was listening to a webinar the other day from Creative Education about leading well-being in your school. 77% of teachers reported that over the last 18 months, they've highlighted a mental health issue for themselves. And that 54% of teachers were actively considering changing their career. And it has been brought home to me very recently, and the people concerned will know who I'm talking about, um, where Ofsted have pushed forward their inspection of schools. And although there's opportunity, more opportunities for deferral because of the high numbers of staff absence or conditions within a school, mostly it's starting to be forged ahead. What are we doing? What we should be doing is putting the resources into support, the well-being, not just of children, of staff, but of our leaders. And having witnessed what happened this week in this primary school, the impact on, we should not be putting that impact on professionals who worked tirelessly over the last two years. And this is not me saying that no sort of inspection or Ofsted should disappear, or oh, that's another debate. What I'm saying is that now is not the time for that. Now is the time for spirit work. So pulling those two things together, both the um, issue about personalized education and to create the opportunity for young people to determine some part of that learning journey, not just the fast pace or, or uh, methods within. Um, and what, what Fulham is writing about uh, and the importance of collaboration. Um, then um, I think the fundamental issue for us is trying to create that agency whereby young people can shape the world they're in and not be shaped by it. That's what we talk about most of the time when we talk about agency and co-agency for that matter, if you go to the OECD compass of uh, 2030 learning framework, because that's what Fulham was just talking about. Uh, we need one another in this process to make these things happen. But it's not just about students. It's also about giving agency an opportunity for teachers to be able to deploy their special skills and their passion to be able to incite excellent learning and progress by our young people. Um, I was listening to a, uh, it sounds as though I'm doing nothing but listen to webcasts and podcasts at the moment, but I, I was listening to a conversation by Tony McKay, one of our visiting professors, um, and Andrea Schleicher from OECD. And Andreas was talking about how over the last two years, teachers have developed huge creativity around the context that they're working to enable their young people to continue with their learning. But the system has not changed and the system is moving very, very slowly. So we have to provide a viable alternative which will enable the system to reflect that opportunity. But he also talked about in that process where children have had to learn remotely, they have, not everyone, 
but lots of them have developed agency and skill that in an ordinary classroom situation uh, never happens. And I can give you actual cases of, from research I did last summer in the heart of it all, um, when speaking to young people, they talked about how they actually enjoy working from home, how they'd set themselves and planned their time accordingly, how they've been able to research in much more detail in the things to be able to go into deeper learning because the teacher had stopped talking and I had had time to develop my ideas and thinking and then have a coaching session to test that off. So, so young people have been given that and we need to draw and listen to that voice and exploit that to enable personalized learning to take place. Um, and I'm going to finish by going to a third text. And this is quite an unusual one, really, because it's not really about education. It's by a guy called Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry is from Kentucky. And uh, he's written, it's a very small book, one of the smallest books I think I've ever seen. Um, and it's called Think Little by Wendell Berry. Uh, and he's describing um, really how we should respond to um, the situation politically with a small p. And actually he's talking here about uh, the environmental crisis, but that's just one of the many things that's being thrown in our particular direction. And I think he's talking here about strip mining and the arguments that he was making to uh, in Frankfort, F-O-R-T in Kentucky, uh, to the uh, powers that be there. In this crisis, it is certain that every one of us has a public responsibility. We must not cease to bother the government and other institutions to see that they never become comfortable with easy promises. For myself, I want to say that I hope never again to go to Frankfurt to present a petition to the governor on an issue so vital as that of strip mining, only be dealt with by some ignorant functionary, as several of us were not so long ago, the governor himself being too busy to receive us. Next time, I will go prepared to wait as long as necessary to see that petitioners' complaints and their arguments are heard fully, and by the governor, and then I will hope to find ways to keep those complaints and arguments from being forgotten until something is done to relieve them. The time is past when it was enough merely to elect our officials. We will have to elect them and then go and watch them and keep our hands on them the way the coal companies do. We have made a tra tradition in Kentucky of putting self-servers and worse in charge of our vital interests. I'm sick of it. And I think the one way to change it, to make Frankfurt a less comfortable place. I believe in American political principles, and I will not sit idly by and see those principles destroyed by sorry practice. I am ashamed that American government should have become the chief cause of the disillusionment with those American principles. And so when the government in Frankfurt again proves too stupid, or too blind or too corrupt to see the plain truth and to act with simple decency, I intend to be there. And I trust that I won't be alone. I hope moreover to be there, not with a sign or a slogan or a button, 
but with the facts and the arguments. A crowd whose discontent has risen no higher than the level of slogans is only a crowd, but a crowd that understands the reasons for its discontent and knows the remedies is a vital community, and I will have to be reckoned with that. I would rather go before the government with two men who have a competent understanding of an issue and who therefore deserve a hearing than with 2,000 who are vaguely dissatisfied. So just taking this back, you know, we've been doing some work with schools around the Earth Summit and environmental issues. And it started with a conference in upstate New York where we talked about empowering young people for sustainability. And I was privileged to be at Northgate High School recently where the students were sharing what they had done to actually get the school to change and move things forward. Um, and they're going to contribute to our conference as well and share their story. And I hope what they're going to do is beat us up and say to us as the adults in the room and as the leaders of learning that now is the time to just do something about this, not just talk about it, not just feel it, not just complain about it, but significantly develop our schools to be sustainable organisations for the future. There isn't a future time when we can do this. It has to be now. And it also has to be now for giving our young people agency, for creating a curriculum that allows space for young people to have a personalised education that enables them to use their passion to achieve far more than we ever thought possible. <laughs>